never at any point was she interested in ending that discussion saying, I got to get to Dan. I got to go see my boys. Instead, it's like her whole focus was planting seeds of innocence and pointing the finger at other people. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And right off the top, a shout out to my CTO, my chief technology officer, Bugs, aka my wife, who just solved an audio issue on Carl Steinbeck's side. So we are forever indebted to the chief marketing officer, the chief technology officer. Also, my IT director. I guess she just got a promotion. Uh, this evening, we dive back into the Dan Markell murder case. Of course, he is the Harvard-educated FSU law professor gunned down in his Tallahassee driveway back in 2014. Two hitmen and a go-between. Uh, Katie Magbanawa are already convicted of the crime and are in prison. Ex-brother-in-law Charlie Adelson sits in jail... And guess what? A trial date has now been set for October 23rd of this year. So uh, some exciting news uh, in that regard. Uh, meanwhile, could other Adelsons be indicted in the meantime? Well, one career military lawyer and legal mind believes there are at least 125 reasons, and those numbers are growing right now as to why Wendy Adelson could, in fact, be charged. Our best guests are all here to break it down. Uh, we started this list last week, continue it this week. Of course, he is retired Lieutenant Colonel Carl Steinbeck, a nearly 30-year judge advocate for the U.S. Army. Uh, he now zealously represents military service members and Department of Defense civilian employees across the globe in fighting for justice matters with his law firm, the Steinbeck Law Firm. He also hosts his own YouTube channel called Jury Trial Mentor. Jury Trial Mentor. And he does that with his brother, John Steinbeck, not the guy who wrote Of Mice and Men. Famed Tallahassee defense attorney R. Timothy Jansen is a partner in the firm Jansen and Davis. He's handled all kinds of super complex cases. He also spent five years as a federal prosecutor. He's also a super lawyer. He also knows Tallahassee better than any other criminal defense attorney in all the world. And then you've got John D. Singer. We're getting a tight shot of his famous windows tonight. He's the founder of Singer Deutsch LLP, designated a New York super lawyer for as many years as there have been in the millennium and then some. And he makes regular appearances on CNBC and other outlets quite frequently. Quick programming note, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on Twitter. We are at Podcast STS. You can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. There's also, this entire time, been a website up, survivingthesurvivor.com, and soon the chief marketing officer will set up our merch store with hats, shirts, magnets, all sorts of things uh, that you can parade around in. And by the way, if you missed it last night, we had Dateline's own Dennis Murphy on with Ruth Markell to talk about the upcoming two-hour episode, a pretty interesting uh, episode in its own right. Check it out if you have not seen it. Carl, first question to you. First question out of the box from Katie Brown. Please ask the panel, how likely realistically 
Would Wendy be indicted? What is the percentage probability if you had to do it that way, Carl? I think it's a virtual certainty that she will be prosecuted. The timing of it is is at issue. And uh, I would think that the latest she would be prosecuted is at probably around the time of Charlie's trial starting. Um, John Singer, I'm unmuting you here. Are you uh, as confident that it's all but a given that she will be indicted? I'm not as confident as Carl. I, I, I do think the odds are greater than 50%. I think that justice has a way of, of making its way to everybody who um, participated in this crime. And I, I believe Wendy certainly did. So I, I do believe ultimately she'll be indicted. I'm not as bullish or as optimistic as Carl is on the timing. I think the pace at which this has moved and the way in which Georgia has methodically gone after them um, sequentially, I think Donna will be next on the virtual eve of Charlie's trial. And I think Wendy will be after um, Donna and Charlie are convicted. And to the great Tim Jansen, um, Carl sounds pretty emphatic and confident that you will be indicted. Uh, are you equally as confident? It all depends on what happens. Um, as time goes by, I'm less inclined to think that they're going to indict Donna before Charlie's trial. I would think maybe the only reason, the only real reason to do that is to give Charlie something to think about since he might be going to trial. If they indict his mother, it might give him a basis to then maybe cut a deal to protect his mom. Um, and if they indict his, uh, Wendy, but I think Wendy will be the last one. I think that uh, they have a little tougher case against Wendy. Um, they don't really have her on tape communicating with these people. Mostly hers are actions and things she did that was not consistent with someone who lost her, the father of her children. So I'm not going to say what percentage, but I can tell you that the target is on. Georgia has said she's going to prosecute whoever's responsible for this murder. And I, and I firmly believe she believes Wendy was involved. Um, now, there are some new people uh, to this case because we've covered other high-profile cases, most recently Alec Murdoch. So a very quick summary. Charlie Adelson is the accused ringleader in the 2014. If you do the math, it's almost been nine years uh, for the wheels of justice to turn to get anyone in the Adelson family. But he is the accused ringleader in this 2014 murder-for-hire uh, plot of Florida State law professor Dan Markell. As I mentioned, two hitmen were tried and convicted, along with a middle woman whose name is Katie Magbanawa. Uh, in what will be more than nine years since the Savage murder, Charlie is now set to go on trial on October 23rd. That date was just dropped today. Uh, but the question obviously remains, will other members of the Adelson family be charged? Of course, that's what we're talking about now. And uh, to that point, Carl Steinbeck has compiled a list of, I think, 125 reasons. And that list is growing as to uh, why she could be indicted. Uh, before we get there, a question for John Singer here, and it reads, down the rabbit holes, right? I wonder what John Singer thinks about Wendy cleaning out her childhood room within two weeks of Dan's murder per Lacoste and then moves back into her childhood home three days after his murder. Indicator, question mark, John. I think that when you, when you take these facts in isolation, they may seem innocuous or coincidental, or there may have been some sort of benign explanation for it. I think this is just another fact that is part of the mosaic. 
that evidences guilt on Wendy's part, more along the lines of the Facebook, um, changing of the Facebook picture. That could have been coincidental because she just broke up uh, with her boyfriend two days earlier. It could have been cause and effect of that. But again, the next day the murder was, was committed. So all these factoids in and of themselves may have independent explanations of a benign nature. But when you put them all together as part of the grander macro mosaic, I think it's it's just another piece of Wendy's evidence of guilt. And uh, like I said, we went through points one through 15. We're about to pick back up before we get there. Uh, LJ writes, Joel, what are the odds this case will even go in October? Strong probability it will get pushed off at least one more time, in my opinion. Tim Jansen, no one knows Tallahassee better than you. Does this trial start uh, a week and one day before Halloween? It will start. The only other avenue is if there's a discovery violation uh, that the, the defense can say they didn't get some documentation or someone gets ill. Uh, Judge Wheeler is not going to move it again. As I said, he, he's not on the criminal docket. He's specifically setting this trial for people to travel, for him to change his caseload. He's given the, the defense ample time now to get ready for trial. And it's going to take a miracle to move it, I think. And Shaquille Oatmeal, my favorite name, points out correctly, if he's convicted, he will be spending his first Thanksgiving in prison. Without further ado, Carl, the floor is yours. We did this last week. I think we'll pick up with point 16. Carl will lead the way, and Tim and John will respond in kind. And STS Nation, look at this. Look at this. So Kyle sounds like my mother over here. Wasn't this supposed to start at 7? Yeah, it was going to start at 7, but we had a minor audio issue that pushed us back. Kyle Carm Harrington, but I still love you, Kyle. I love my mom, too, but she'd be busting my you-know-what. Anyway, Carl, let's pick it up at point 16, and uh, we will move forward. All right, we ended last week with a money motive, and we start today now with a money motive as well. Wendy had tried to secure the GoFundMe funds that Tamara Dunko had set up, and uh, she actually did, according to what I've found from the evidence, she actually did recover those proceeds. And uh, she did posing as the widow of Dan Markell. So I don't know exactly how much money it was involved, but why would you pose as a widow of Dan Markell? And why would you worry about those funds that somebody else set up? So I thought that was very odd. And that's an indicator that money is is a factor here. It's not the main factor, but it is a, a key factor here. John Singer, uh, any response to point 16? I, I think, um, as I said last time, I, I don't believe money was the factor or even a significant factor. Ancillary, there may have been an ancillary benefit to Wendy as a result of the murder. But again, I'm just going to go on what the prosecution stated. In their opening in both trials, the motive was relocation. It was never mentioned that money was factored into it. And again, I think here you have to demarcate between evidence of Wendy the criminal versus Wendy a bad person. All these things about the GoFundMe and other things that Carl has mentioned, evidence that Wendy is a reprehensible person, are they evidence of her participation in a conspiracy? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. I would put this one in the lab. Um, well, Tim? Can I follow up with that? Sure, sure, sure. All right. So the thing is, it doesn't, 
um, necessarily matter so much as what I think. When I'm prosecuting, I'm looking to think, what are other people going to think? And a lot of other people, even on commentary, think money could be a motive. And so I'm looking for a lot of things that could bring into play because individual jurors have their own mindset of what could be a big factor or not. And so just as John and me disagree, I think it's important as a prosecutor, you got to try to cover your bases for all different viewpoints. And so I want to go for a wide shot group of the type of evidence to show that there's other factors here that that set her up for success by having him killed. And then I would go on defense and I'd be saying, ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution can't tell you what the motive is. So they're throwing everything up there, everything on the kitchen sink, hoping you'll grab the one of them. And if she really did commit this murder and they really had evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, they would be able to tell you what the motive was, but they can't because they don't know. No, that's that's not what I would be arguing, Tim. Well, you said I'd be arguing it was primarily the relocation. Hey, real quick, John, I'm going to keep you muted, but when you come on, unmute yourself, okay, because there's a little static coming off your mic. Go ahead, Carl. There's more than a single motive in a lot of cases. You cannot say because one motive you don't agree with that there cannot be other motives that join in with that one. So, and I'm not talking about having so much tangential motives that they don't really, really make a whole lot of sense or they confuse the jury. But all these individual things that Wendy has said and done and things she has uh, played off other people and played other people and manipulated people, all that kind of stuff needs to come before a jury to get to the right decision. My, my position is the timing makes that motive so much more crucial with that court date, with that not being able to transfer the location, the hearings, the responses. It's perfect timing for that motive and her mother's frustration and the mother, if we're going to charge the mother, what was her mother's motive? She wasn't getting any money. She was getting her grandkids. That was her motive. What was Charlie's motive? Getting mom, making mom happy, Wendy happy, and the kids down there. That's what I think is the strongest part. I don't disagree with money because insurance, you get money. But I think overall, her motive was to relocate to South Florida. Uh, this is an interesting question here. Uh, and Tim, this is up your alley. If the defense shifts blame to Wendy or Donna, what should we expect at that point? Is that possible? Could that happen? If Charlie's defense, I take it. Correct. If Rashbaum. Pushing it to Wendy or to Donna. Um, that's an interesting scenario. Um, and I don't know how much that would sell. Because by pushing it to Donna, you're implicating yourself. Because then it now makes it seem like, yeah, the conversations you were having in code with your mom that you were having means you were you knew about it. You were a participant. The same with Wendy. Um, they, they're trying to say that they weren't involved. They didn't know anything. Um, and you heard the call that she had with Wendy after the police sounded like a really scripted call between Donna and her mother. So. I, I just don't think, Charlie, that's their best line of defense. I think they're hoping and praying that McBonagh is a witness and they, they can point to McBonagh being not credible and saying that the government's case is so weak they had to call this murderer, perjurer on the stand. Uh, here's a question from Jeannie Castellano, who I spoke with yesterday. She is a friend of the show. Um, John, I'm going to toss this to you and you can unmute yourself, which I hope you can do. Um, wouldn't uh, Sigfredo Garcia be able to talk since he kept his mouth shut previously 
and be more credible than Katie if he is willing to do so? I think that the issue with Garcia is, is multifold. Number one, um, there was a walling off, if you will, of, of each of the co-conspirators. Um, Katie was dealing exclusively with Charlie, and then she was dealing exclusively with um, Garcia. There was no interaction that we know of between Garcia and Charlie. So I don't know to what extent Garcia can implicate Charlie if they didn't have direct communications. Maybe he could recite what Katie had told him. But again, there's no evidence that there was any direct communication between the two. And of course, the secondary issue with Garcia, or maybe the primary issue, is um, what we heard from Rivera, that um, there's this code in prison. I think other people have said it on your show as well, the convicts you had on, that Garcia may not be incentivized to speak because cooperating with the government mm -hmm. certain perils that are attached to it. So I, I don't I don't foresee Garcia being a big player in this. And I'm going to amplify what Tim said. I don't think Magmanua is either, because the defense, as I've said all along, would welcome Magmanua to be called to the stand because then it would be the trial within the trial. They have a very strong, streamlined, simplistic case against Charlie that doesn't need to be mucked up by putting Magmanua on the stand and Rashbaum destroying her and then it becoming a diversion for the jury. And John, just following up, Harold Dull, a friend of the show here, writes, question for Tim and John. Uh, and then we're going to get right back to Carl uh, at the end of the show, but we'll do it at the beginning of the show. Do you think there's enough evidence in the record to convict Wendy? We know what Carl thinks. John, I could limit you to one word on this, a one-word answer, but I won't. I, I think it's, it's more difficult um, with Wendy than it is with Charlie and with Donna uh, because of the lack of wiretaps and because there's no money transfers and, and other reasons. But um, I, I think that, Wendy, there's so much there. Uh, I'm not ascribing credence to all of Carl's reasons, but some of them on his list are very powerful. Um, and they, they do evidence guilt on her part. So is it a slam dunk against Wendy? Far from it. Do they have enough to go with to indict her? I, I believe they do. Tim, what say you? I, I agree with John. I think they can certainly charge her. And I think the question is going to be then, does is she that bold that she could sit there and smile at a prosecutor in a courtroom saying they're not going to arrest me? Is she bold enough to have John Laurel put her on the stand at her own trial? Um, you saw how that worked out with Murdoch. Um, she does have a bit of confidence and arrogance when she was testifying that she couldn't, she's untouchable. So, but I don't think it's a slam dunk because of, you don't have the direct links to her, but clearly what John has outlined is a very strong circumstantial evidence case. And if she testifies, she could be convicted based on credibility alone. Uh, and that's in, in Florida, if you testify, you don't have an appeal for sufficiency of the evidence because credibility alone could be sufficient for a conviction. And just to add one more thing, Joel, if I could, on Wendy, and, and again, this is not going to be a popular opinion with, with the audience, um, and you know how we all feel about Wendy, but Wendy's very smart. Wendy can be charismatic. You heard it from, um, from Jeff Lacasse. She has a certain public persona that is incongruous with how she is in private. She can turn on the charm when she wants to. 
She's an agile witness. We saw that in the first trial, especially not as much in the second trial because Georgia had her more pinned down. Um, Wendy has the ability to sway a potential juror or two. That is a concern of mine because as much as we loathe her, when I say we, I'll speak for myself, as much as I loathe her and <laughs> is detestable on her face, does she have the ability to persuade a juror or two? I think she may. That, that's a fear of mine. Ask Jeff Lacoste. He said he she had him under a spell of sorts. So it you is know, Joe, I met Wendy with John one day in the parking lot. And I tell you, she is kind of riveting and she does have charisma. And she, she looks at you and you're like, you want to believe her? So she has that sense that she could she couldn't pull the wool over a, a certain individual if, if she's not cross-examined properly. Interesting. Uh, LJ writes, hi, Wendy. Hi, Donna. If you're joining this, hi to you. Um, Carl, back to you, point 17. And we'll, uh, at this rate, once again, we will finish after Charlie's trial. But hey, we're one happy family and we've got time. So, um, and soon Charlie might have all the time in the world to join. But anyway, Carl, point 17. All right. Next we have is that if you notice, all litigation she had with Dan was stopped cold in its tracks once Dan was killed. It completely ended. All the things that Dan was going to bring up just evaporated into thin air, never to be heard from again. Those 800 pages of filings between her and Dan, it's all irrelevant now because she was able to pick up and leave. There was no judge restricting her to stay with the kids in Tallahassee. Instantly like escaping. It's like a jailbreak. Tim? Tim, your uh, reaction to that? I mean, basically, it was a get out of free, uh, get out of jail free card. I think, I think that's an excellent point. I think it's a strong point for the prosecutor. Uh, I think Wendy can't. There's no way Wendy can avoid that tap dance around that. She did benefit greatly by being able to move her kids. She lied on the stand when she said it didn't. It didn't affect her. All these motions by Dan, which was not true. You could tell the mother was going crazy about these things trying to pump Wendy up the fight. So this was their answer. This was their $1,000 bomb. And it's a big motive. And uh, John Singer, before we get there, Charlie B writes, look at, look at the impact you're having, John. This is the highlight of my week. Literally my three favorite guests. I venture to think that Charlie's either from England, the UK, somewhere, Australia, Canada, South Africa. One of those. Spells favorite with a U. But, John, what about the fact that all that litigation just basically evaporated as a result? I don't think it was all that litigation that was the issue. I think it was one piece of litigation, the March 2014 motion to have Donna um, have only supervised visits with the children, uh, that the grandchildren. That was the single biggest piece of litigation that um, I think set Donna over the edge. I don't think... Again, we said this last time, the bar license, um, you know, holding Wendy in contempt or, or those things, I think, are, are part of divorce proceedings. They're part of ugly, nasty litigations we see every day. But it was the cutting off of Donna from the kids um, from unsupervised visits, which was the accelerant and was the final straw, I think, in this case. Best part about this podcast is I've adopted many, many moms. I now have Linda Feldman writing, hello, I wait for this every day. Where are you guys? A couple of minutes late today. A couple of minutes late. Carl, point 
18. If I could just circle back to one thing, though, it's still stuck in my mind what John said. If there's one or two jurors that are compelled by Wendy's uh, bedazzling them or whatever you want to call it, uh, I, I don't see her coming around and getting an acquittal from this. I think that's the one question to ask the panels. Do you really see Wendy getting acquitted of this? No. And we're only on question 17. So, I mean, I haven't even presented my case yet. So um, <laughs> please don't please don't make a, a judgment too soon on this. But uh, moving on to 17. Um, I think we're on 18, Susan, correct? Yeah, 18, sorry. Um, if you if you study the Wendy interview with Detective Isom, it ne never at any point was she interested in ending that discussion saying, I got to get to Dan. I got to go see my boys. Where are my boys? I, I got to get out of here. Instead, it's like her whole focus was planting seeds of innocence. And then when that didn't work so well, then pointing the finger at other people. You know, think about it. At 3.30, she's getting photographed and fingerprinted. They took a little break in the action there. And so she's getting really nervous about this. So her whole focus was stay there as long as you can to deflect, 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 just like she does in court, deflect a lot of questions. And so um, her, her demeanor and the way she came across was also looking like she was maybe wanting to be there at the hub of activity in case the hitman got captured or something like that, intercepted on the way back to Miami. So she was right at the, at the right place doing the right thing and doing the opposite of what you'd expect a lawyer to do, which is don't talk to the police, invoke your rights to uh, counsel. And so she had this all figured out. This was all played up. And, you know, she talked to the uh, talked about the folks at Tallahassee being a bunch of country bumpkins. They're never going to catch on to what she's doing. And if you look, look at it, it actually worked for a long time. You know why? Because I noticed that uh, in the police report, as of the 14th of August, I, I recall it was, in there, it's, it was refer referring to the interview with Jeff Lacoste because he came in a second time on his uh, first time he came in at, at the police department's request. The second time he came in on his own initiative and he was laying out more things about, hey, you need to understand this about Wendy and about Charlie. And it was really eating on him of how he was really is realizing that he was being set up as a patsy. And, and you know what the police report says that um, we informed him that Wendy was cleared and he said, well, she shouldn't be. You need to need to look after her. So it, she was never looked at seriously from the start. And only when things started coming up from Miami and the hitmen coming from there, did the Adelsons really get a credible look. So um, with that said. Well, let me, that, that's an interesting point. I think to uh, see what these guys uh, reaction is, but Tim, uh, basically the point is Wendy uh, did not end her five hour police interview on the day of the murder, seeking to check on her boys and or, you know, how Dan was at that point. Uh, focus was acting like the victim. Um, strong point in a, in a courtroom. I think it goes that it goes back to Murdoch. How did he treat when his kids were killed? He, he was more worried about his statement, having clean clothes than he was worried about his other child. Um, you know, Isom's a, Isom is a streetwise, very experienced investigator, and they were just trying to get her to talk. And I don't know if you saw this, but when they, my client, Brian Winchester, was arrested, they brought his wife, Denise, down there as the victim. And she was interviewed for hours and hours and hours. 
And she was not concerned about her own victimhood. She just wanted to go pick up her kids. Okay. She was worried about her kids. Now she had a different reason because she knew what she had done. But I think that the cops would lie. I don't know if they would lie to Lacoste about her being cleared, but I know that Craig considered her a suspect from the very beginning. He thought all, all roads went to Miami and the family on this murder. This was a hired hit. It wasn't a mistake. It was planned and orchestrated. So I think it is a big point. Every time, if, there's a, if you're a victim of a crime and you don't act like a victim or you act too much like a victim, these trained investigators are videotaping it, watching it, and it is strong evidence in a trial. And uh, Tim, this came up again. It came up uh, last episode from 786. Wendy wearing the same outfit on two separate appearances in court is the best example of someone trying their hardest to hide in plain sight. What's your take on that? You said it last week. I loved it. I said, that, you know, when if you're an actor playing a part, you use the same costume for the same part. And she wanted to make sure she was in her role and she had her costume on. Uh, or she was basically thumbing her nose at the media, the prosecution, and said, I'm going to wear this same outfit. Uh, it worked so well the first time. Uh, let's see if they catch it and see that I'm wearing the same outfit. That is a, a mic drop right there from the defense attorney, Tim Jansen. Um, hi, baby doll. Hey, y'all, STS Nation. We are on to point 19. Quick shout out to Carl's brother, John Steinbeck, who is in the chat. Uh, he helps Carl with everything. And not only that, he gets your packages on time. He flies the 747 for either FedEx or UPS. I forget which UPS, one. Yeah. UPS. So you better use UPS moving forward. Anyway, on to point 19 here. Okay, well, not only did was she not focused on her kids and Dan at that time when she's there those five-plus hours, but then think about it after she got released from there, she still didn't go to the hospital to see Dan and Dan died at one in the morning and she didn't bring her boys there. It, it's like he was done and gone. He was over with. The mission was accomplished and she was moving on with her life. She probably went home and talked to her parents about planning how to, how to, how all of her stuff is packed and she's ready to go. Any, uh, you guys care to retort to that or uh, respond to that, or we move on to uh, 20 I, here? I, I do want to respond quickly to that if I could. 100%. Um, and, and I agree with Carl's overall characterization of the five-hour interrogation, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how many times I've listened to it. Um, it's, it's been several. And there's tremendous acting and orchestration by Wendy throughout the interrogation. But, but just to correct one factual point, Throughout that interrogation, Wendy is asking about the children. She's asking if school has checked in with them, how they're doing, who's going to pick them up. Should we have someone there, her friend Lynn Grossman, who they know? Do you have a car seat? There were all sorts of queries regarding the children. Regarding Dan and whether she should visit him, never. Obviously, that never arose. That never came up. That was never going to um, be asked uh, for by Wendy. Again, does that evidence her guilt or does that evidence the fact that she's, you know, a deplorable human, perhaps a little of both. But she does ask a lot in the interrogation about the well-being of the kids. She doesn't she didn't when she pulled up to Trescott right after the murder had been effectuated on her way to lunch where she took that circuitous route. She didn't stop to ask anybody about the children there. 
But during the interrogation, she, she does ask quite a bit about them. So just as a factual point, just wanted to clarify that. Well, as a factual point, she didn't bring up the kids until 20, 20 minutes into the interview with Detective Isom. So that's what I thought was really strange. I and, and I agree with that. But the one thing we don't know is what kind of conversations took place antecedent to that on the way to the police station when they got her from the restaurant and they and they brought her over to the police station. We're not sure. We, we don't know what was asked of her, but she does ask a lot about the children. I don't want to come across as a Wendy defender because it's quite the opposite, yeah, but it, it, actually to clarify. Counselor Singer, I'm curious. You just admitted that you've listened to this interrogation more times than we care to know. Are you looking at it from a lawyerly perspective or are you just interested? Um, what, what's the reason behind it? I think I think a little bit of both and, and trying. I, I think that certain people, I'll think of, I think of David Ladd, I think of Matt Scherer, who did the Over My Dead Body podcast. I, I think quite a few of us were swayed by the interview initially. When you first hear it, he's offering up Charlie. Um, as a potential suspect by talking about the hitman joke. She's, she's saying that she hopes nobody did this on her behalf, i.e. her family. She doesn't offer up Jeff LeCasse. That was offered up by her friend who came to support her during the interrogation. Her, I don't remember her name, but it was a friend, I believe, who introduced her to Jeff. And the friend invoked Jeff's jealous side, not Wendy. So I think we were swayed a bit, but then you listen to it again, not out of curiosity, but more as a lawyer, and you realize the entire thing is orchestrated. She's playing it so there'd be uh, plausible deniability. Who would offer up her own family other than an innocent person? That's, that's the, I'm not going to call it the genius of it, but that were the machinations that went into it. And I think the interrogation tape if you will, will be part of her defense, just like the emails were from Donna to her, where it's Donna haranguing and Wendy almost a passive participant, right? So I think the interrogation might be used by the defense, and I think Wendy planned that from the get-go. Uh, Roxanne writes, I am Carl's number one fan, followed by this great point from LJ. Please hit the like button. It gets the algorithm chugging. Uh, I think we've made it up to 20, right, Carl? Right. Hey, by the way, if I'm talking too loud, I don't have any feedback, so no, I, I don't mean to drown you guys out. You're great, Carl. You're great. All right. So for 20, notice in that interview, and, and John picked up on, on all the manipulations and uh, and whatnot she was doing in there, but notice she brought up the idea that someone must have done this for her. So that leads to the question of, well, why would somebody kill Dan on your behalf? What did you tell them about Dan to make them want to kill him for you? So it's sort of like a dig at Dan and also a deflection away from her. I mean, it's really a pretty good move. The problem is you can see right through it. It's being manufactured. Tim? I, I agree. She's she's legally trained. And if she knew what was going to happen and how it was going to happen, then she clearly thought out what she was going to do, set up Lacoste, set up this luncheon, Drive by there to get this bullet. Of course, she bought bullet. Who buys bullet when your husband gets shot and killed by a bullet? Um, so I think she's clever. And I think the interview, she used that. And in case she doesn't testify, she wants that to be introduced. 
but normally you don't get to introduce that. That's hearsay. So you have to testify. So I'm curious, one, if she gets charged, if John's going to put her on the stand. That's what I, because John's a good lawyer, smart lawyer. He was present during some of this stuff. So he's well aware of what's going on. And I'm sure he'll be watching Charlie's case. So, but she's clever, really clever. And uh, Shaquille writes, Wendy has zero chance of getting indicted. She's home free, followed by LJ, who's responding. I will let Georgia answer that question for me, but I'll let Carl. I mean, Carl, what would you say if you bumped into Shaq Oatmeal at uh, Starbucks and he said that to you? What's your, besides presenting 125 points, what's your bottom line answer to him? He's not on the jury, so it doesn't really uh, matter what an individual in the, in the public domain thinks. What really matters is, do you have the right prosecutor? Do they have enough knowledge of the details of the case, the behavioral characteristics, and how that conforms to all the evidence of the killing involved in this case? And if you think about and view how they prosecuted Katie one, along with Sigfredo Garcia, versus how they prosecuted Katie the second time, they went in a lot more details and a lot more witnesses, not just with Jeff Lacoste, but they also did it with other witnesses as well, including Wendy. So I think that supports my theory, which is the best prosecutions, especially if it's really circumstantial like this case, but you have so many circumstances that all work in your favor as a prosecutor. You just got to get up there and do it and, and be confident and pull all these things together. And there's no way she's going to get acquitted. I guarantee you that. Detroit is in the house. I like saying Detroit. Jessica K. Joel, officially a huge fan of your wife, as am I. Um, point 21, Carl. Again, you look at Wendy as a mother of the two boys. And if you notice from her trial, the way she defiantly said it's not her job to find out who the killer is. She has zero interest. She's not following the case at all. It's not her interest whatsoever to know who killed her boys. I mean, that's just so preposterous. Um, and we all, we all, it's so obvious why she doesn't want to go down that road because it all points back to her and the family. Carl, I have a question for you on this. On 21, sure. as a mother, Wendy has showed zero interest in finding who murdered her kid's father. Does this go along with, uh, I guess, point 18, where she's not really? How are you differentiating between these two points? Well, um, I'm talking about after she left town, mm -hmm. okay? So I'm talking about the five-hour interview for number 18. This is totally separate because now she's up and packed and left town, but there's no reach back to Tallahassee to be a cooperative witness. She's not coming up to uh, testify as a victim impact witness in the sentencing for any of these parties that got convicted or pled guilty. So she openly admitted on, on the stand that that's not her job. So what family member is, is not involved in, with the police and finding out what's going on to, to track down and uh, prosecute the killers? It's like she's washed her hands of it. She's moving on. Doesn't want to hear anything more about Markel. I could name two, O.J. Simpson and Alec Murdoch, but <laughs> probably not the two best examples. Um, Joan Russell writes, love the channel. Actually addicted. Always a great team. We love STS addicts. Everything else, stay away from. I'm addicted to sugar. Horrible. Got to get off of it, but stay addicted to STS. It's good for you. Um, Ireland checking in the house. I didn't know that. Uh, 
from Ireland. Welcome to you. Uh, point 22 or 20, where are we here? 22. 22, yes. This is uh, something I thought was very telling, especially as a lawyer. I mean, this makes it a huge uh, increased factor for me, is that Detective Isom tracked her down at a luncheon, right? The luncheon that was real close to by where her house lives and all kinds of liquor stores, but instead, you know, she made that big, huge circle around Tallahassee to uh, go past the uh, Trescott house. But what um, what she didn't do was demand to know right then and there what's going on. I mean, there's no way I think any reasonable lawyer will get in a police car without understanding what they're doing and why are they being put in a car. Because it's one thing to follow the police back to the station. You're not a suspect. But if you get get asked to be put in a squad car and then she had her car impounded, she may not have known about that after she left with uh, Detective Isom. But a lawyer would have like demanded all the details. Why you why you um, ask me to come back to the station? What happened? She would have mentioned something about the uh, police car she saw in Trescott. And there was this sort of like none of that seemed to be addressed because if you notice what how the questioning started out back at the police station, she was all she, act, she tried to act all surprised by it. So. Um, and she never mentioned, if you notice, she never mentions in the interview until minutes later that, oh, yeah, I did see those uh, police cars in front of uh, down the street on Trescott. So she sort of in a delayed reaction tries to act surprised. Oh, that was that what that was. Well, you'd be thinking that as soon as the cops show up. Right. You wouldn't be thinking that several minutes into the interview. So I, I just saw all that showed it was contrived and uh, orchestrated. Tim Jansen, uh, you know Trescott. What about that point number 22 here? Um, I think any lawyer would not get in the back of a police um, without knowing something. Um, knowing his car was an undercover car, probably a really small car. But why would you? You would follow the police. You'd say, okay, do I need to get a lawyer or, or, or something? You would just not leave your car, get in a police car, and go to the station without inquiring what's this about. Um, and I find that a little troubling and not real. I would never get in the back of a police car. Uh, I remember the last time I did, it was only to help find a body. Um, and it was weird, really weird to be in the police car. So I would think she would not, she would have been asking more questions. What am I doing here? Where are we going? Why? What happened? And then to say, oh, I saw the police cars on Trescott, knowing that that's a really small street, knowing that the way the route she was going, she would be able to see probably see the house, at least the driveway from that road, certainly would have seen the police cars. Um, she would have stopped. Anybody would have stopped. You know, if it's in your neighborhood, you would you would be inquiring what's going on in the street. My babies are there. And that, that shows she didn't care. This whole time she didn't care. She didn't care about Dan. She didn't care if he was shot. She didn't care if he was died. She didn't ask why, how he was killed. She didn't care. All she wanted to know, he was dead. John Singer, anything you want to add to that? And just unmute yourself. Let me unmute you. I guess, I guess more of a question than a comment. I mean, we, we clearly know what happened during the interrogation because it's all it's all taped and we heard it. And we know that the first time she learned of um, what happened to Dan and that it involved him specifically was um, during the uh, initial stage of the interrogation because uh, Detective Ison told her. What we don't know, though, and I don't believe because I don't remember 
Detective Eisen testifying about it is what the conversation was en route from the restaurant to the police station. Did she ask a gazillion questions? And he just said, look, I can't talk about it until we get down there. Everything. So I just don't know what that conversation was. So um, I asked Carl, is, is there any record you've seen of whatever conversation she took, she had with Isom on the way from the restaurant to the station? It's, um, it's not, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's not in the police report, but what I'm taking from experience is that by way, the way she was asking the question about the shooting, there was no shooting mentioned. And so the follow-up questions uh, that should have been asked were not asked by her. And that's in fact is number 23, which is, she didn't press the right details either about Dan or her kids as when she found out Dan had been shot. She didn't ask where he was shot, where in the house he was shot. And incidentally, somebody else I know brought it up where it's like, and isn't, isn't it interesting how Dan was shot not inside the home where it could devalue the house, right? He was shot in, in the garage, uh, less disturbing, I would say, to a prospective buyer. So that that's my point for number 23 is that she's just not asking the right questions for either of concern for the kids or for Dan. Could I, I want to interject on that point because in the Brian Winchester and the Williams murder case, they knew the wife was involved. So when they went to pick up the wife, the officers had their recordings going, their recorders were rolling. And, and they had video, too, because they wanted to show her reaction, what her response was. And in that case, she never asked. They said they found him. He's been murdered. She never asked where. She never asked how. And that's a strong point. I, I, I find it hard to believe that Isom didn't have his recorder on or his phone recording so he could have got every statement she made. I think that was a mistake if Craig didn't do that. All right. John, uh what Carl just said, that was fascinating that uh, the, the murder took place outside as to possibly not devalue the home. I mean, do you think it was that well thought out? And also, no. you talk about how smart Wendy is. Being an attorney, um, she doesn't seem to be asking questions that if, and I say if, and they're all proven innocent, or all, all uh, presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law, but... Um, you think that she would have um, smarter questions and perhaps reactions more well thought out than we are seeing or saw? I think that's true. I think that I think her knowing who's going to get taken down to the police station, her sole focus was on this issue of plausible deniability. It wasn't the minutiae or the granularity of, of how the Killers, whether they did it in the house, outside the house, where he was shot. I think she was more focused on offering up, you know, Charlie to some extent, the joke he made about the hitman, so that if it ever came back to her, then she could say, well, an innocent person would, would never do that. As far as devaluing the house again, I think that's part and parcel of if this were a solely and exclusively a monetary motive, then perhaps that would have been an issue. But again, it's it's all just ancillary. It was all about killing him so she could move, which she did, you know, 72 hours later, right after the memorial service. That was the sole motive here. I don't think that anybody said, well, to the I don't think Magmanua said to the killers, just make sure you don't, you know, muck up the house. I don't think for one second that was a thought. 
Big thank you to uh, Faticus for a uh, super sticker. No relation to mediocrities, which is what we sometimes call CARM. Uh, inside joke between me and her. Uh, Asian American Legal Focus says, hi, everyone. She is one of the OGs of this case, uh, Judy Tsang, on, uh, on YouTube. So check out Asian American Legal Focus if you have not seen it. Uh, and we are at point 24, Carl. The denial of visitation to the Markell family is a huge deal, I think, in this case. And it's really going to be something that the jury is going to focus on because it shows the extent that Dan was eliminated in all aspects of him as well. So when you have a virtually a six-year gap of visitation from her uh, sweet grandparents up in Canada to come down and visit the boys. And oh, by the way, the visitation is only offered right before Wendy has to testify. That is just so that is just so extremely cruel and it's indicative of her consciousness of guilt. Uh, Tim, would you like to uh, and I got to say, I mean, Ruth, who we had on our show last night, Dan's mother has been a tireless advocate for grandparents rights. And uh, the fact that she's been denied uh, visitation rights is, uh, you know, that is one of the most difficult things I know for sure that she is experiencing. Uh, personally as a result of this. But what about this as a prosecutorial point, Tim? I think it can I, I think it can show what a bad person she is. Um, and you know it's it's so funny that the comparisons to the to the Winchester case, same thing happened to that grandmother. They kept those child those children from that child from her grandparents. Um, and it does show animosity and what a bad person she is. And it might convince a, a couple jurors. Yeah, that's how bad she is to keep. But I don't know if that's going to carry the ball the whole way, but certainly it's going to show she's a bad person. And it might go back to the motive for when uh, Donna that she wanted to see those kids. I know in Florida, I think we passed legislation last year, grandparents bill of rights. Um, so I don't know how that affects the mother and grandmother. But it is important, and you see it all the time in divorces where the children lose a grandparent on one side, and it's really sad. And Tim, uh, while we have you, Denise A. writes, does Charlie have any leverage at all with the DA to, quote-unquote, save his mother and or sister? Well, what's he going to say? I will take 25 years or 30 years if you don't prosecute my sister or my mother. What 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 is he going to do to save them? She's already made a decision in a grand jury. He's indicted him on first degree murder. Georgia feels comfortable with her case. She's going to proceed with her case, and she'll take the next defendant when they come. But I don't think he's got any. I don't think he has anything to give, um, and it doesn't look like it because the lawyers are pushing to go to trial. I like this comment from K.H. Walker. My judge grandfather said the wheels of justice grind exceedingly slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. Uh, in this case, it'll be nine years till an Adelson uh, faces trial uh, for these murder charges, um, for this murder charge. Uh, Carl, point 25. Wendy completely misled the court when she testified on why the boys were denied 
accessed uh, by the Markel grandparents. She uh, based that on an accusation that the Markels were trying to put the boys into foster care behind her back. And she had seen the email that Ruth Markel had sent to Georgia indicating that, that she was just looking for a few day interim fostering until they could secure access down there in the, in the event all the Adelsons were arrested. So it's only under under that context. So she had she had misled the court on that aspect. I think it um, it's just part and parcel of any little thing you ask her, you're not going to get a straight answer for. So I, I think all that indicates, and a jury's going to read that as being you're lying about everything because you, you were so involved in this, you can't you can't come clean. Another famous quote here: Nightwood presents it. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. MLK. Uh, I wish I could do his voice, but I can't. Um, Carl, point 26 now, is that right? I think this was brought up by John last time, but uh, this is on the list. And that's the fact that there's such a matching uh, similarity of cars between the Hitman's car and Jeff Lacoste's car. And may maybe it is a coincidence. I don't know. But it, it, this is a definitely data point. I think uh, jurors are going to focus on and discuss among themselves uh, during deliberation. And also the timing aspect of it as well. When you, when you stop to think about uh, Jeff supposedly planning, according to Wendy's knowledge, he was going to leave for Tala, uh, from Tallahassee up to Tennessee around 11 o'clock the morning Dan was shot. Well, he actually admitted he'd be driving right near pretty close to Trescott around that same time if he had kept his schedule according to what he told Wendy. So that, that's a really eerie coincidence. And so I, I think that's a, a, a key data point for the jury to consider as well. Um, Asian American Legal Focus and a few other people were talking and she responded to someone saying, yes, I'd expect Luis Rivera to testify at Charlie's trial. John Singer, do you expect the same thing here? 100%. Um, they're all, they, Rivera, Garcia, Magmanua, and Charlie are all cogs in, in the conspiracy. And Rivera is the one who can offer up uh, the details about how the hit was effectuated. Um, Garcia's contact with Magmanua, Magmanua's comment to Garcia um, that she knew it had been done. And it's all part and parcel of proving the continuum of the conspiracy. So in my view, it's 100% chance he testifies. But just to pick up really briefly on the last two points Carl made, which really resonate with me uh, in, in a much more powerful way than, than does the monetary motive. The fact that Wendy curtailed the visitation rights in 2016 and the fact that um, uh, he did so in such a callous way and then used Ruth's email as a pretext for doing so and completely twisted the meaning of it, that to me is something that would really, really resonate with jurors. And, and I think, again, these are human beings these aren't robots. They are guided and instructed um, to follow the law. And these jury instructions are very formulaic. But the, at the end of the day, when they get in that room, they're human beings and they glom on to different things that we may not contemplate. But this is something that's really easy to glom on to. She cut off the grandparents from seeing those kids. How despicable a person do you have to be? Does it show that she was part of the conspiracy in and of itself? No. But do, you, do we think that that could sway jurors and how they view her? 
they're not, they don't look at things as myopically as we would, as we are led to believe, or we may think that they do. They're humans. And this is from a human element as bad and malicious of a type of behavior as you could ever foresee or imagine. And Tim, this comment from William Powers, who always makes intelligent uh, points, whether Donna slash Harvey plan to isolate Wendy, she'll be difficult to prosecute since so far Wendy only possibly had knowledge of the murder, which is not a crime in Florida. Uh, agree with this or not, Tim? I, I think to a point, but I think that's why it's so important. What Carl has outlined is these actions that she took things she did, things she said that will clearly show more than just knowledge but participation with the ex-boyfriend. We believe the evidence is really strong that she let them know about the murder because when I think Rivera said he called, it's done and she said no. And there was anyone would have known at that point about the murder of um, Markel because it wasn't publicized at that time. So while I, and I think that's why we all agree that Wendy's the hardest to prosecute. And that's why I think what Carl has done gives you a complete outline, which will make that trial much more longer and much more complicated. But at the jury and like, you know, watching the Murdoch trial, I saw talking heads thinking intelligent legal theories. But I said, they're crazy. The juror, common sense, common sense on the juror. They know what happened and they're going to find her, him guilty. And they did. And I think they'll do the same with Wendy. I don't think she'll get an acquittal. I think maybe a hung jury. But I think if she testifies, just like Murdoch, I think she'll be convicted. Uh, Jennifer Bickley writes, when is the show on Dateline? Of course, we had Dennis Murphy, a Dateline correspondent, on with Ruth Markell last night to talk about how they make the sausage there, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, there is no air date currently. They try to uh, time it with a trial potentially, but uh, Dennis assured me he will let me know, and I will tweet it out to all of you. Follow me at Podcast STS. And then we've got this question. We'll get back to the list. Robin Ray, uh, why are the prosecutors – so willing to keep McBanawa's proffer sealed. Let's go to John Singer for that. John has called it a big nothing burger to begin with. So uh, if you want to take this one, John. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's um, part of it. I think also um, they don't, I mean, Charlie has the means um, at post-conviction to further an appeal. So you don't want to give grounds um, for an appeal. You don't want to poison the potential jury pool. There, there's a myriad of reasons why they're keeping it sealed. But I think at the end of the day, I'm not sure there's much in there. That's my supposition. Um, I could be wrong, but, but again, I don't think there's much in there um, that's useful to them. And I, and I don't think ultimately they're going to put Katie on the witness stand for the reasons that I've spoken about. Uh, Pirate Girl writes, Hey, SES, greetings from Seattle. Have to catch up on the show. You sure do. Uh, we are at point 27, Carl. All right. As to the, the interview for Wendy with Detective Isom, there's so many gold nuggets in there. And this is another one of those where I, I mentioned how she instantly started crying in the interview. 
and the lack of questioning for Dan's injuries and his whether he's conscious and stuff like that. I, I just thought it was so contrived and fake. Um, initially, I think when you first see it, you, you keep an open mind. You're not coming with any uh, thoughts one or other. But the more you look at it, the longer it goes on. The, the uh, And if you look at a second, third, fourth time, which I haven't done, but I've looked at different segments of it, uh, different clips, multiple different ways. It, it all comes back to the same conclusion. This this thing was uh, was a setup. So she was all planned out and how to, how to deflect attention from herself, throw some back on the family. What a perfect way to make yourself look innocent. And uh, in any event, uh, we, we could talk for days about that five-hour interview because there's so many good things about it from the prosecution standpoint. Uh, Tim, kind of what is the burden of proof on uh, someone who appears to be rehearsed or not uh, as a defense attorney? How do, how do you prove that to a jury? Uh, the burden, what, to prove she's a liar? Just that she's kind of been re rehearsing lines, let's, let's say, or acting in a certain way. How do you show that? Well, you show it by the lines are inconsistent with a normal person would respond. All her answers always seem to be protecting her, pushing blame onto someone else. She never, ever admits to anything. Um, you know, and I, I've always found that when you put a police officer on the stand, if he has an answer for everything, you know, it's really easy to cross-examine him because no jury is going to believe anybody's perfect. But when a police officer agrees and admits he makes mistakes, then you have he has credibility. Then it's much more difficult to say he's a liar. She'll get up there, and I believe the juror is going to believe you can't really believe anything she says. And they'll be able to cross-examine her now with two different transcripts, two different trials five-hour interview. So there's going to be plenty to cross-examine her. And, and jurors are pretty smart people. Uh, to that point, we've got a comment and a question aimed right at John Singer. The first one from LJ. Disagree in all caps with Singer. That's Counselor Singer to you, LJ. In my opinion, a jury will detest her. Georgia and Sarah <laughs> would handle it perfectly. That's one, John, and I'll give you this one too. For attorney singer, fancy fiction thinks the motive for murder was based on how righteous and Machiavellian Donna is. What is your opinion that it's Donna's really bad personality traits that led to Dan's murder? Let's start there and we'll work our way back. I, I agree with fancy. Um, on, on, I, I've always said that uh, Donna, the murder was done for Donna. There was such a close relationship between Charlie and Donna. You just listen to those wiretaps, the way they con converse with one another, how warm it is, and, and how they both take these gratuitous shots at Wendy. Um, I think that at the end of the day, Donna just couldn't take it. She, she couldn't handle the fact that Wendy was going to have to be in Tallahassee for 16 years. And conversely, that was going to inconvenience Donna and Harvey to such a great degree that they just couldn't withstand it. And what personality trait is that? I think that Donna is doesn't like to lose. I think Donna, I think Donna wants her way. And I think Donna was going to do whatever it took to get her way and to make sure that Dan didn't win. And she made that clear in the emails. Nobody beats the Adelsons. Let's, let's hit them where it hurts. I mean, the, the suggestions she threw out were so crazy, but they were emblematic of the fact that she wasn't going to let him win. So I think, it was a confluence of things regarding what the, the last person wrote 
about the jurors, please listen to what I said. Okay, don't take a snippet of what I stated. I didn't say the jury was going to acquit Wendy or she was going to convince 12 jurors of her innocence and use her charm and guile to somehow delude all of the jurors. What I said was I was concerned about one juror or perhaps two in this ending up in a hung jury because Wendy, like her or dislike her, is a smart person and is a, is, she's a tough witness. She's not going to be an easy witness for Georgia or Sarah on the witness stand. She's not going to be a patsy on that stand. She's smart. She's devious. She's a liar. She's calculating. Like I tell my clients, the best witnesses are the biggest liars. When I have very honest, forthright clients, I tell them, you're a great person in, in, your, in every walk of life, except when you're on that witness stand, because you're not going to be a good witness. You're too truthful. You're just, you have to tell the truth, but knowing who you are, you're not going to be able to even fake it. So Wendy is going to be able to fake it. Okay. And, and there is trepidation on my part. I think maybe on Tim's too, that she could delude a juror or two. Carl, I think is well past that. Carl is impervious to that. I think he doesn't believe for a second that she's going to be able to do it, but that's my fear. And that's, that's as fired up as I've seen John Singer since Tom Brady went to Tampa <laughs> Bay. Um, Jeannie Castellano writes, it's her wickedness that's putting her evil spell on all you men. She hasn't poisoned my brain, LOL. I want to ask a question here, but I'm actually afraid because then I'll get me too and thrown out of here. But Tim, I'll ask it anyway. And there's a question yeah. for you. Let's just, for the sake of a hypothetical, she gets indicted, mm -hmm. they have to seat jurors. If you're a defense attorney representing her, do you want to get a young man who potentially could find her attractive that will maybe be taken under her abilities to put men into a spell? Is that something you are looking for? And to the contrary, does the state want to keep any kind of young male jurors off of the juror, you know, the the, the jury because of that exact same reason. Is that something that you have to grapple with if you have a person that some consider attractive uh, who's going on trial? Well, let me tell you one thing I've learned in many years of practice. Women judge women more harshly than men do. Mm. And men will see a woman walk in and think she's pretty. A woman will see her and say, oh, she's a slut. Mm. It's a different look. I would probably, I'd be as worried about older men as I would younger men. I think the women on the jury being mothers would really detest her uh, and they'll see right through her. If I was at all men, men but they would want women on the jury and the defense is probably going to want men on the jury. Interesting. Question for you. Tim, another question for you from Law Nurse. Question for Tim. That's why it's a question for Tim. Don't you think they have as much, if not more, circumstantial evidence against Wendy than they did Denise Williams? Well, in Wendy's case, they had my client directly testify that they had communications, conversations about killing her husband, and she benefited financially $4 million 
So there was some direct evidence by her co-conspirator and the actual person who committed the crime. But it was a weak circumstantial evidence case, and it really relied mostly on my client's testimony and the money. Uh, and that's what it came down to. So I think there's a stronger circumstantial evidence case against Wendy than it was Denise. Point 28, Carl Steinbeck. Wendy's reaction to the news when they indicated that Dan was still alive and they, there was some glimmer of hope potentially, look at how she acted to that news. There was no elation. Again, no urge to be by his side, to encourage him to uh, fight and survive this brutal gunshot, shots to the head. So that is very telling of what she wanted to have happen to Dan. Uh, Tim or John, we care to react? I think that's a pretty big deal. I, I think it's a big deal too, but let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Um, these, Dan and, and Wendy, were in year almost it had almost been two years um the quote-unquote pearl harbor incident there had been a extraordinarily contentious divorce brutal then there had been a separate there had been a uh, separation agreement signed um, a marital separation agreement was signed i guess at the end of july of 13 and the litigation post divorce continued for the next year Brutal stuff. I mean, Tim um, and uh, Carl has pointed it out, motion after motion, threatening to take her bar license, lots of accusations levied at her and her mother, perjury, things of that nature. They hated each other. They, they, they hated one another. That, let's be clear. There was tremendous animosity, perhaps more so than you'd see in, in any other divorce or certainly on the upper echelon of, of hatred you'd see in divorces. She said, you know, during the interrogation, they were actually, or, or maybe it was during her testimony, they were actually at a, in a, at a better place in July of 14 than they had been previously because he was dating Amy and um, he was happier, but they hated each other. Guts. So the fact that she didn't show, I mean, she, and we know she's a terrible person. So I'm not sure how much that goes to consciousness of guilt, the fact that she didn't inquire when there seemed like there may be a glimmer of hope. I think that was reflective of the fact that she's an awful person and she hated his guts and, and, and vice versa. So uh, that, that one doesn't move me as much as some of the other ones do. But it's a win for the prosecutor either, either way because where's all that boo-hooing coming from? You despise and you have this trench warfare going on for two years and you're boo-hooing like you love the guy. So, I mean, none of it adds up for Wendy. Well, that, now I agree with that. The, the the entire and I don't know how you you can't during Wendy's prosecution you can't play the entire five hour interrogation. They're not going to do that. Um, but you have to somehow convey to the jury that the entire facade she put on during that interrogation was complete and utter premeditated orchestration. When you hear it for the first time, not necessarily did I form that conclusion. You listen to it a few more times, it's patently obvious. Uh, this is an appropriate name for this. Uh, Malignant Enemy. Hello from Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Love this show. We love you back. Followed one up in Canada. Hi, team from Lamb Island, Queensland, Australia. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Love all your guests. Another case I'll need to catch up on. Carl, we are at point. 
29 as we make our way to 125 plus reasons uh, why Wendy could be indicted. Hopefully we get through that list while we're all still alive and on this earth. Well, this sort of mirrors with what Tim was saying, which is Wendy lied so much on the witness stand that she lied about things that you wouldn't even think a normal person would lie about. That's what was so bizarre about it. And that's why her cross-examination uh, by the defense counsel was really, really, I thought, not good enough in, in material respects. And one of those is the fact that she kept on deflecting questions. And for me as a, as a cross-examiner, if I know somebody's deflecting my questions, I know I hit a sore spot with them and I'm gonna go a deep dive long, long, drawn out series of questions. They're going to be on the stand for a long time because I know I hit a sore spot that that was in, going to indicate their guilt. And what happened with, like, I'm thinking of uh, Chris Lacoste, uh, he would, like, get a deflection of her and he would just move on to the next question. He never really, like, zeroed in and, and made her uncomfortable. So when Wendy left the witness stand, I'm convinced she felt she won that battle of wits, Okay. But that's only because they let her off light. They never went in for the deep dive, right? So if you don't go to in for a deep dive as a cross-examiner, when you got a witness that's just lying about the complete most obvious things. Um, so, for example, well, what are the things she lied about? Was the divorce a contentious divorce? She, she made it sound like it was a normal divorce. Um, she made it sound like Dan's legal filings weren't a big deal to her or her parents. Um, she also even said that the motion to relocate the kids, losing that motion before the court was not a big deal as well. So, I mean, it's just like belies any kind of rationality of, of how do you even believe anything this person says? So, um, and then lying about them, any potential motives and benefits to trying to deflect how many millions of dollars were in life insurance that, uh, we're going to be there to support the boys. Remember, she tried to make it sound like it's only 1 million. No, it's really two million, one million per child. So everything was like deflection, um, misdirection, trying to confuse the questioner. It, it, it was just, it was it's one of the worst jobs of testifying I've ever seen. And Elvis has left the building, but Fancy Fiction has walked right in. Hello, all from Fancy, who is another OG of this case. Uh, she puts up. Um, a lot of very pertinent information, um, and you guys need to check out her uh, YouTube channel. And John Singer, I think you wanted to reply there. I think the cross-examination by Krista Coase during the second trial was really fascinating from a legal standpoint, from, from the lawyer standpoint, because what you had there was both sides hated Wendy and hate Wendy. To Coase's uh, magnanimous side hates Wendy, and they find her to be reprehensible. I, uh, we know that, as does the prosecution. So DeCoste was just making speeches. He wasn't even asking questions. And obviously, John Loro, Wendy's attorney, is not allowed to make objections. Wendy is a witness. She's not a party. The only one who would be objecting to DeCoste's questions or, or speeches in this case was the prosecution. And the prosecution was loving it because he was just talking. He was just saying... Maybe you know you, he was going off saying, maybe you know who did it. Maybe you're guilty. Every question he asked was objectionable on his face. He was just making rambling speeches and there was no one to object to it. So I thought that was fascinating. He could have said whatever he wanted. There was just during the entirety of the cross-examination, 
there was one objection that was sustained um, by Judge Wheeler because it was such a long and rudderless speech that even the judge at that point had to step in and help Wendy. Um, but I, I think that picking up on what Carl said, she lied in both trials about things that were very big and very small. She said she was relieved when the relocation motion was denied. That's a big lie. And that's, that's a, a blatant one. And then they asked her, are your parents millionaires? No. I mean, like lying about the dumbest things, you know? And I think that she lied big, she lied small, and that's definitely going to come back to haunt her in, in the next, uh, in, in her trial. Uh, Tim Jansen, Nikki Mick writes, I'm a woman, and I think Wendy did an A-plus job not implicating herself. I think she has guilt and knowledge, but she is very well poised when on the stand. I couldn't find her guilty based on what I know. Do you think that Nikki might change her mind after we get through all 125 points? Uh, how would you sway someone like her? Well, first of all, um, Wendy wasn't on trial. Georgia wasn't introducing any evidence against Wendy. Georgia was focusing on Meg Bonawa. Um, she was getting what she could, but what wanted record so down the road if we find something to impeach her or she says something that we can use derivative use to find some evidence showing she's wrong or lied um i don't disagree um because every juror said you're innocent till proven guilty they didn't try wendy in that case so of course nikki is right she'd have to find her not guilty at this point uh, Sean Beecher writes, Carl is crushing, and it wouldn't be a show if we didn't get this from Jessica K. Tim, your hair looks fantastic tonight. Um, loving that. Um, Carl, point 30, and we'll keep going for a little while here. We're, we're on a roll. <clears throat> Wendy was very hesitant to call her mom, Donna, when on the cell phone speaker in the Detective Isom's uh, interview room there. And it, to me, I could just see the hesitation. You could just palp, it was palpitating to see how she was nervous that her mom was going to mess up the script. It, it, to me, it was just, it just jumped out is is so, um, so uh, scripted. Like, do I really want to call? They're asking me, I gotta, I gotta go through it, but oh my gosh, this could be like an earth shattering moment if, if my mom doesn't sound the right way. And, uh, and Donna, you know, didn't sound that surprised about it, didn't sound that shocked or upset, I thought. Didn't ask the right questions. Who did it? Where did he get shot? How long is he, you know, what's his current medical status? Or where were the, uh, it, it, there's, I can't remember all the exact details, but there was, it, it did sound rehearsed on both ends. And uh, so based on that, um, I thought that was a good indicator as well that this this whole thing was planned out and rehearsed. Uh Pam Cakes, not Pam, but Pam Cakes writes, and who wears an owl shirt? Question mark followed here by Chris Kennedy. Made my first live stream. Welcome, Chris. Just sub, but been lurking since the beginning of the Murdoch trial. Love the content. Keep it up with the awesome guests. Uh, so, so hosts always have the best guests. That is for sure. Um, I think we're up to 31 here, Carl. Yeah. This is where my uh, numbers is, get all messed up. 31 okay. is right after 30 because if you recall, Wendy said it, it's she sounds relieved. I'm re She says I'm relieved that my 
both my parents sounded surprised. <laughs> I'm like, who says that about your parents? They sounded surprised that Dan was shot in the head. Um, and yet she only talked to Donna. So it just shows you how she's trying to stretch and plant seeds of innocence for her family that, yeah, I'm willing to point some fingers at the family, but see, you got nothing there. So it, it, it was just all part of the part of this rehearsal act job that they did. I think that uh, preceded uh, down there in Miami, the two weeks she was down there right before she came back and, and Dan was killed that following week. Everyone thinks this one says Carl is freaking on fire. Carol writes STS merch. It is coming. Thanks to our chief marketing officer, AKA my wife. We're a small but lean and mean operation here. Next point, Carl. For 32, Wendy told Detective Isom that she hadn't talked to Dan that week due to laryngitis. And if you notice, Dan even tried calling her the morning he was killed and uh, left a voicemail, but she never she never answered his call, but yet answered the voicemail. So and why didn't she talk to him that week? If you recall that, I think she also saw him at the, uh, what was it, a Whole Foods restaurant? Um, and there would have been some interaction there. She was trying to avoid uh, Dan, I think, for for the reasons we know why, if you're involved in this thing. She didn't want to have to face him, and it would just be better not to even deal with him because she knows what's coming down the pike. And... I think it's also maybe telling that how she also stiff armed Jeff when she did, because uh, as somebody pointed out on, on commentary that is it just a coincidence that she punched out Jeff when she did, maybe she was using that time to uh, avoid having Jeff come over to the house to see that she had been getting her fares in order to try to get the kids moved out of there in a couple of days. So don't know if that's true, but, that's the kind of things that people really pick up on. It just goes to show how smart the juries are. You just got to get them the facts, and they're going to run with it and get to the ground truth. Uh, ST writes, please invite members of the behavior panel channel to join you to micro-dissect Wendy's behavior. Steve, Secret Sauce Cohen, my partner in True Crime, is, is on it. We're going to get some behavioral experts to break down all of Wendy's behavior uh, when she was on the stand. Uh, that is coming to a show soon uh, near you. Um, at this point, Tim or John, uh, any any follow up to any of these recent points, John? I like the last um, couple of points uh, very much because I do think she was fearful of of communicating with Dan in the week prior to the murder. I think um, she did everything to avoid him. She uh, during the interrogation, she said she ran Tim at Whole Foods the Wednesday before. Um, the murder. Um, it was her day to have the kids because the way the custody arrangement worked was it was Dan's week, but on the other person's week, um, the, the, the spouse that didn't have the kids that week had the Wednesday. And she said that she saw him at Whole Foods, avoided him because she didn't want there to be a whole big scene, took him to a burger place instead. I think that she cut off contact with Jeff and went home um, first to South Beach um, so they could rehearse everything. When she got back, she just wanted to be on point. She didn't want Jeff to interfere with what was happening. Um, she thought she had Jeff as the perfect Patsy to set up. Um, however, he deviated from his plans and it didn't work out for her that way. But he had the fall guy and Jeff. He was going to be leaving 
supposedly for Tennessee at 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday, July 18th. His route would have been right by Trescott. Um, so I think it was all calculated. And it had been in the works, in my view, since the relocation was denied. And then it accelerated when um, the motion against Donna, uh, specifically levied at Donna, um, had been filed in March. And uh, Carl, William Powers chimes in once again here with this comment. Much of what Carl states might be interesting for opening and closing statements, which are not evidence for jury consideration. The evidentiary portion of the trial will not substantiate Carl's comments. Carl, I'd like to have you respond to that. Well, um, William is not discussing things that uh, I'm, I'm pointing out as actual evidence, things that people have testified to. So all these things are things that people have said in interviews with Detective Isom or the other uh, interviewer. I forget his name. Agent Sanford. Uh, yeah, and I'm also getting information from credible sources like Ruth Markell's book. To say I'm just making stuff up out of thin air, I mean, that, that shows you what what uh, those kind of questions are about. So, Poop Scooper, not to be confused with Pooper Scooper, Poop Scooper writes, STS is Dateline Quality Stuff. Best channel on YouTube on crime, hands down. Lucky Dennis Murphy is retired. He is toast. Um, I don't know about that, but we do have Steve Cohen and the chief marketing officer slash IT director, my wife, who helped run uh, the ship and keep it righted. Uh, Carl, next point. <clears throat> For 33... Wendy admitted to Detective Isom that the murderer should get fully punished, the full extent of the law. But then she totally backtracks and says, well, not if it's a family member. So again, it was like she's she's indicating her family could be involved in this. And why would why would you do that? It's just, it's just so so much a, a skit to to deflect and yet act like you're innocent and thinking that there's no way they'll ever connect this to Miami and her family. And then if you recall in court, she completely lied about this to Georgia. And Georgia didn't follow up with it um, like I thought she would have to uh, really close the loop and uh, and uh, cross-examine her to, sh to show the lie. But uh, we've we've seen what she said on, on audio tape there uh, and videotape. So um, why, why would you lie about something that that obvious? Uh, Kay writes, reminds me of OJ, flew back to L.A. from Chicago. God, I remember that. And never asked how Nicole ended up being deceased. He didn't know if it was a car accident, home invasion, slip and fall, and he didn't ask. And that's because he knew uh, some similarities going on here. Carl, I know I've asked you this before, but what piqued your interest in this case? Uh, you live in Texas. You're not in Florida. Um, how did you uh, get interested? My brother told me about this case because he has a channel for many years called brainwashing children on mm. YouTube. And so when I was visiting his house, he told me about this case. I never heard of it. And I, I do watch some true crime stuff occasionally on Dateline and whatnot, but uh, he told me about this case and, and it really was astounding to me that these people hadn't been prosecuted yet. And the more I looked into it, the more that was a resounding big question mark. And, and I thought, um, something's really amiss here and then he interviewed me and put it on his channel and that's how you guys found out about me and and called me i love that carl just clarified my own knowledge because i didn't even know he's telling th telling me things about myself that i did <laughs> not know which is awesome um, my wife does the same thing 
Uh, we'd love at some point, Carl, I'm going to pick your brain about helping us do this with the Ellen uh, Greenberg case. She was found dead uh, in 2011, stabbed 20 times. We've had her parents on. We're trying to get some justice for her. Mm. 20 times, 10 to the back of her neck, back of her head, two after her heart stopped beating, implying she was dead, yet it was ruled a suicide, not a homicide. Her parents have been waiting since two. 2011, which is kind of crazy. Uh, Becky, hey, Joe, I, Joe, can I ask a question? I'm curious. Yeah. John, do you know Laurel, John Laurel? Do I know John Laurel? No. Okay. Uh, what do you guys think, Carl? Do you think if she's charged that her lawyer will put her on the stand? When There's no way. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's client's choice. But, you know, I think we all know that Clients really rely, unless they're a Murdo and they're so full of themselves, and he's a lawyer as well, like Wendy. If a client's that full of themselves, you're like, fine, you, th you think you know about how to defend yourself than me, then then you'll see the outcome kind of thing. But um, because you don't want to have that fight with your client, but um, ultimately it's their call. But I, I, there's no way an experienced defense lawyer um, from my jurisdiction would ever advise somebody like her, given her baggage, to testify. John I, Singer, I yeah, John Singer, do you agree with that? Any any chance in hell she takes a stand unless she begs to do so? It it also just depends on on the evidence, right? In Charlie's case, I don't know how the other um, guests feel about this, but the evidence is so overwhelming against Charlie um, between the Dolce Vita recording and all the rest of the evidence that exists against him that it, it almost he almost has to testify because. The evidence is so overwhelming. He, they, they, they need a Hail Mary, so they may have to put him on the stand. And, of course, he's the type of person who I'm sure is going to win that battle um, with the lawyer. He can't, Rashbaum can't prevent him from testifying. Um, so I think ultimately he will testify. With Wendy on this evidence that we have here, this record, I don't think any of us think, maybe Carl does, I don't think Tim and I think it's a slam dunk. So unless there's more out there that we just don't know about, which they're saving for Wendy, which they very well could be. They don't have to play all, they didn't have to show all their cards vis-a-vis -vis Wendy in Magmanua 1 or Magmanua 2. They don't need to show it all against um, Wendy in, in Charlie's trial. So it just depends on the, on the strength of the evidence um, to see if she's going to need to testify to save herself. If she does testify, I think that's when we have some discord about her ability to sway, not sway. But it all depends on the strength of the evidence. I'd, I'd be curious what Tim and um, uh, Carl think about Charlie, the likelihood of Charlie testifying. I think it's a fait complete. He's going to testify. I don't know what you guys think. Tim? Yeah, I, I think he will testify. I think he'll try to, to throw the, throw her under the bus, Meg Banawa, if she testifies. But I think he'll try to talk his way out of it. Uh, he's got some damaging thing he, he feels like he's going to have to fix. He can't say there's insufficient evidence. He can't without coming up with some excuses, something that they haven't heard. Try to put some reasonable doubt out there for him because right now it looks overwhelming, circumstantial evidence of his guilt. Mm -hmm. I mean, the money, stapling the money and then having his ex-girlfriend come in and say he stapled money. I mean, that's that's pretty damn strong evidence. LJ writes, I can't wait until Carl gets to over 200 points and we'll have to get every single content creator on YouTube to do a show about this simultaneously to get through it. Tim, back to you, and then we'll get through a couple more points and wrap the night. 
Uh, Lita Randolph writes, if grandchildren, Tim, live out of state, should one get an attorney in that state or the state where the grandparents live if they're dealing with grandparental rights? I think you got to get the lawyer in the state where the children are located, not where their grandparents. There you go. Give, giving out free legal advice. Giving out free legal advice. Next point here, Carl. That's family law. So I take that back. I'm not an attorney law, but I'm, I'm pretty positive it's where the children live. Okay. This is uh, 34, and this is really a, a highlight for me and the key timing of it all. And I think we've, we've talked about this already um, either tonight or last week. But the, the 11 o'clock on the 18th is almost the exact time of the murder, and that's the time that Jeff Lacoste was supposed to leave. I mean, that is just so telling of of, to me, planning, and maybe it's mistaken planning, maybe that was never passed on to the hitmen, but it is such a such a strong indicator, I think, that there was, there's more connectivity going on here. And of course, we don't know the, what the WhatsApp or Snapchat conversations were about. So I, I think a lot of that was going on scene. And keep in mind, we've only heard from the Rivera, right? We don't, Rivera wasn't talking to um, the Florida contacts in Miami. So he was only getting information, and some of it he was getting filtered from Sigfredo. And Sigfredo was trying to make sure he wasn't going to back out of it, right? So Sigfredo wasn't going to tell him maybe a lot of the other details. But in any event, I, I just thought the, the timing of that was, was just very compelling. Uh, any follow-up from Tim or John on that? I think, I think that is a strong point, that she really mm -hmm. wanted to know when he was leaving, exactly when he was leaving, and that fake little thing in the parking lot. Um, and then thank God he left early the night before. Otherwise, he might have been a suspect. He had a car that kind of resembled the Prius. That that goes key to show involvement with her because she's passing that information. I mean, you passing information on to people, what time's the best time to rob the bank? When's the guard going to be there? Uh, then you, you are a co-conspirator and you can be charged as a principal if you take any acts that help commit the crime. John? I agree 100%. The, the, the conversation um, after the yoga class, asking him when he was leaving, no conceivable reason to do so unless you're trying to set him up and have him take the fall. So very, very powerful point as we talked about last time. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, Jeff was asked three or four different ways that question as well. It wasn't just, that, hey, are you going Friday to Tennessee like you told me about it was like, well, why? So if you don't go, why wouldn't you go? And, and those kind of follow-up questions. So he says, like, I think three or four follow-up questions as well. So she was really honing in on that time. And uh, what what I don't know is how that also coincides with maybe the uh, the uh, geek squad showing up to fix that uh, TV or try to fix that TV because um, they showed up according to the police report at eight twenty. And so I didn't know if the, the uh, initial window might have been later, like 10 to noon. And so they picked 11 or something. I don't, I don't know. How oh, it was 8 to 12. Right. It was eight, the, the window. 8 was to 12. 12. Okay. So, um, so there you have it. Uh, real quick. Ann Vroom uh, writes this comment. How did these gals like Wendy and Lori Vallow manage to wrap so many people around their little finger? I certainly don't have that sort of girl power. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Thank God. Uh, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that tomorrow night. We are following up, doing another show on the Lori Vallow Daybell case. And Dr. Roger Rhodes will have at least one therapist addressing that issue and so how someone goes so far off the uh, deep end, they basically uh, believe that the 
end times are here and they go ahead and uh, allegedly kill their children as a result of all that. So we will have a psychologist on the show tomorrow night to discuss that. Let's fire through three more points and uh, we'll call it a night. Carl? All right, 36. This was mentioned last time by John. John brought this up and it was a very good point. The suspicious behavior of Wendy on the evening of June 4th. That night she was a total nervous wreck. Jeff said he had to go 35 minutes leaving her house alone to go pick up some petrol bismol. Her gut was in knots and she would, again, would not specify the cause for why she was so upset and nervous about something. He said that she wasn't sick. She hadn't eaten something. So there's no rational explanation, but that coincides with the timing of, of uh, the hitman going up there the first time that weekend. So what do you know? Um, Tim, will Pepto-Bismol be the undoing here? And a follow-up question from Dawn. So you're saying she's guilty of conspiracy. Is that what this look is? Does this look like where it's heading, Tim? Well, it's interesting because wasn't, uh, I, I, I want to clarify, wasn't that they were supposed to come up a week earlier and commit the crime? And, the, that when they were, and that's why she was nervous. Doesn't it coincide exactly with the time they came up the first time? The first time was the 4th of June. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that, that is important because she clearly knew not acting the same. Uh, um, no coincidences in a murder case when the spouse of a, a wife getting divorced from a hub, husband and you have custody issues. There's no, consp there's no con coincidences. Things happen, and they happen for a reason. And she may have planned, but she didn't plan certain things. And when you are that nervous and something's good about to happen, yeah, I can see you needed Pepto-Bismol. I, I think Georgia will pick up on that. I think Georgia is really smart. And I, she'll pick where she's going to hone in on. And I think that's going to show Wendy's undoing. Tim, uh, Roxanne writes, this is possibly the most important question. What color are your walls, navy, black, or something else? And someone else, I forget who, who's a friend of the show, said she is unable to concentrate on this show because she is mesmerized by your walls, not to be confused with your hair. But what color are your walls? Well, when they were first painted, people thought they were purple. But they're not purple. They're a really dark blue, a little more than navy blue. And you could, sometimes when the sun comes in, they may be purple. And I don't know what this has to do with the legal show. But and uh, is, this your, is this your office or is this your scotch room here? Your this, is, this is my office where i try to fight justice every day it's a horrible, uh, girl, a horrible working environment little singer just walked by with a football i love it go giants baby um carl steinbeck this is a small point but i thought it was worthy of mentioning it's something that uh the jury will pick up on is another one of her lies if you recall uh, Wendy acted in court like she didn't. She doesn't know much about cars. She couldn't know a Ferrari from a Pinto kind of thing. And yet Jeff Lacoste said that she definitely knew about Charlie's Ferrari because she talked about it. So again, just why couldn't she admit that? Just like looks like John mentioned the uh, the fact she wouldn't even mention her, her parents are wealthy. Uh, either of you a comment? Keep going, whatever you like, John. No, I mean it was it was funny. You know, she it was such an obvious lie when she said, "You guys just my car. It's a minivan. I know nothing about cars." Like, your brother drove a Ferrari. Come on, <laughs> admit your. It's not that hard just to try and tell the truth. 
if you're going to lie, like Wendy was inclined to do, all right, lie about the big things. Yeah, you didn't care about the relocation being denied. But the little picayune things about her parents being millionaires or what kind of car Charlie drove, ridiculous. I don't know if it adds up to consciousness of guilt, but, you know, it, it shows who she is. Baby boomer. those questions, Georgia is just waiting for her day. Georgia is putting everything together, and she's going to have her day, and Wendy's going to be sitting in the wrong seat in that courtroom the next time. And, and just, Joel, just one thing on that, because if people were mystified by, by why Georgia wasn't more adversarial with Wendy on the stand, just as a legal point, she was the prosecution's direct witness. So Georgia couldn't cross-examine her, if you will, unless they had characterized her or, or asked for her to be characterized as an adverse witness. It's, it's a legal point, a, a nuanced one, but the direct examination had to be a direct examination. Couldn't be a cross because she was a state's witness. It will be much different if Wendy's on the stand in her own trial. You'll see a much different Georgia examination of Wendy. Wow. 100%. Important, an important legal distinction. Baby Boomer 56 writes, they were all co-conspirators. Wendy planted the seed back in 2013. They all facilitated this murder, followed by another STS Nation member from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Carl, what do we have? Two more left or one more? Uh, one or two, I'm not sure. Uh, two more. Okay. If you recall, four days before the hit on Dan, Wendy tells Jeff to have no contact for a week. And keep in mind that he'd only been back for Tuesdays to see her because she'd been going to Miami for two weeks. And what's unique about this, it's just a little data point, but it's something I pick up on and something I would present in court through his testimony, which is that this one was different than the others. Hey, I need some space. Let me think things over. This is like a really firm military type order, like do not contact me for a week. And he thought it was really odd. Why is it so definitive and firm? She's never done that before. And I, I think it shows her consciousness of planning and guilt. Gentlemen, anything? Move, John? It's a big one. It's a big one. Um, you know, it was a cease and desist. And as he said during his interrogation and during his testimony, they had just been apart for two weeks other than getting together for a movie the night before the class. So that type of cease and desist, um, knowing that the murder will be taking place in the intervening period, I mean, that, that's, that looks pretty bad. And we have yeah, made it set, to the... Setting up the patsy. Setting up the patsy. She broke up with He's angry and he's angry enough to go kill my ex-husband. Exactly. We have made it to the final point for tonight. We're not nearly through all 125 points and growing, but... Uh, for tonight, Carl, and I love the fact that Carl is just no nonsense, man. He is no nonsense, point by point, very deliberate, very calculated. Kind of reminds me of Georgia in a weird way. But uh, Carl, what is the final point for this evening? Yeah, and before I say my last one, I just do want to say that you know this is not a numbers game, and I, I'm just going by the points that I think that need to be made. And my brother just add the numbers besides them. If you notice our title on on Jury Trial Mentor. We did not say how many there were because it's not about, like I say, the numbers. It's it's about the facts and what, what reasonable interpretations are from those facts. So number 39, I think, is a really strong one. And that's there was some kind of trip in June that Jeff had down to Gainesville with Wendy. 
And that's when he confronted her about seeing other men. And he'd never really directly confronted her before. He sort of always talked around it. And so what what he did that time was really do a, a cross-examination on her and call her out on some stuff. And she freaked out and actually was like curled up in a fetal position, I recall seeing from some evidence. So that's how her reaction was when she really got cross-examined hard, which, she, like I say, she didn't get that way uh, treatment in court at all. Um, and so what kind of questions was she posing at him to really string him along? I mean, it's really it's really significant to me, the kind of stuff he said. He, he described it as a she was he was like doing an audition for the role of both a husband and a father for her two boys. Like she would talk him out of moving. He was in a, like a tiny apartment trying to save money to build up to buy a house and and, uh, and a cheaper car. And he was wanting to you know, move up because he'd been saving his money kind of thing. And what did she tell him? No, don't buy a house. Move in with me. No, don't buy that Jeep you always wanted. You got it. That's that's not a good family vehicle. So, I mean, she is really pulling on his heartstrings and really messing with them. And to do that back in June, as recently as that time frame in relation to the murder, and then this whole time frame, which we just talked about, like, don't talk to me. I mean, he, he's got played so bad and severe that I, I just think that really shows that he was a fall guy. And the more I think about it, he was a fall guy from the get go because he didn't fit the South Beach mindset at all. If you stop to think about it, he doesn't he doesn't fit in the South Miami. Right. Just like I don't. He's, he's, he's not a South Beach kind of guy. He's a good, wholesome, you know, American professor. Great with great uh, or what he does. Super witness. And for, for him to be jerked around like this and treated that way. Um, I, I think it was a long-term plan to set him up as a fall guy. Uh, Jackie Bay. Thank you to you. Super sticker followed by another super sticker. Uh, Mackie, I got to be honest. I don't even know what a super sticker really is, but I will ask the chief marketing officer and I'll let you know. I'm just uh, winging it on this YouTube thing, but loving it. Having fun, not understanding it. Big part of my life. Haven't really understood my own life for a long time. Look at this. LJ writes, Oh, that's the wrong one. Carl for president now, 2024. No way. You can run, you can run with DeSantis. Um, John Singer, I don't know what to say about this guy other than he's a rabid New England Patriots fan. He's co-founder of Singer Deutsch LLP. He's been a New York super lawyer since they instituted New York super lawyers. He's on your TV very often, especially on days like today when the market is not doing well um, and when banks are going under left and right. But, uh, John, before we get to your final thoughts, should people be pulling their money out of their banks right now? I don't think so. Maybe the regionals are a little more dangerous than, than some of the, the bigger banks, the big four. Um, but, listen, it, what Carl, I think Carl is doing a great job, and he's really – for him to put all this together and, and give us, you know, 20 to 30 more hours of content as we wade our way through the, um, the tribulations of Charlie till we get to October 2030 is doing us all a service. And Carl, the next time I'm in South Beach, you're, you are coming out with me. We're <laughs> on the Yardbird. We're going to do a whole tour of of the, uh, the Adelson trial. We'll go to Yardbird where they had dinner with Jeff LaCasse and where they saw allegedly saw Sigfredo from a distance. Um, we'll go to the Icon where the Adelsons were living, where the bump took place. But no, I think seriously, you're doing an awesome job. And I think you put together great, great 
reasons. Again, some resonate more than others. Some, in the, and, I, and I think you appreciate that, some in the hierarchy are more compelling than others. And I don't think at the end of the day, Georgia's going to go with everything because obviously, you know, the, the motive um, for the money, I think, is not as important as the motive for relocation. But um, happy to be on. And, and Joel, thank you for, um, again, satiating all of our the addicts you have out there. And I'll tell you, this is what I love about SCS Nation, by the way, Brooke Rates. Thank you, Carl. We have just as many, if not more, members of SCS Nation on at the end of an hour and 47-minute show as we did at the beginning because you guys are smart and you want to hear from smart people, not me, but the three other guys. Uh, Tim Jansen is one of those smart guys, a famed Tallahassee defense attorney. He's a partner in the firm Jansen & Davis in case you get any into any trouble in uh, northern Florida. He also spent five years as a federal prosecutor. He's also a super lawyer in the state of Florida. And uh, Tim, what are you looking for? Uh, you you know that uh, state and that and that city better than anybody. Uh, will this trial actually take place on October twenty third, as it is set? I think at the beginning you said it will. I, I think it will, and I think um, I want to thank Carl because. I'm- what Carl's done is basically done what a prosecutor is probably doing when they get these cases. Give me all the evidence, get their investigator, everything we have to prove motive, opportunity, and show a consciousness of guilt, especially in a circumstantial case. It makes it even much more harder. Um, and I, I agree. Some points are stronger than others. And I'm, I'm just curious now that if Wendy is charged, how many uh, of these points that George is going to actually use and, and where will she put them in her hierarchy for the case? Uh, I'm curious to see who will cross-examine uh, Wendy. I believe it will be Georgia. Georgia is the more senior prosecutor there. Uh, I thought Sarah did a great job in her cross-examination of Meg Bonawa. Sarah's pretty good on her feet. Um, she has a good presence. Juries like her. Um, she has a little different personality than Georgia. Georgia's more more steady Eddie and right to the point. She never loses her focus. Uh, But I do think this judge is not going to, I know this judge for a long time. He's going to give you one or two continuances, but when he gives you, it's what March now, all the way to October, you're going to have to have some serious, serious reason why they change this court date. I I think it'll be firm. Uh, That comment said, Georgia hire Carl. Not a bad uh, thing for her to do. I'm sure she'll be looking at these at Carl's points. Uh, Murray Muncy writes, this was another great show. One of the best comments of the night from Cliff Frankenberger, Freddie Couples, all exclamation marks. That is now uh, an inside joke on our show. People think that Tim looks like the golfer Freddie Couples. Um, The man who is breaking this down point by point and uh, who will be back next week with these fellas is Lieutenant Colonel retired Carl Steinbeck a nearly 30-year judge advocate for the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps and combat veteran. He now zealously represents military service members uh, all across the globe uh, with his own firm, the Steinbeck Law Firm, and he hosts his own YouTube channel. It is called Jury Trial Mentor. Jury Trial Mentor, that is Carl Steinbeck's um YouTube channel and his brother John Steinbeck. Is it called Brainwashing Children, Carl? Yes. Brainwashing Children. If you are interested in that, you can find something on it 
on John Steinbeck's YouTube channel. Carl, uh, closing thoughts this evening. No, thank you for uh, for having us on. I think it's very important for fighting for uh, justice for Dan and the Markell family, all of them in, as well, because there's many other cousins, aunts and uncles and whatnot up in Canada that have been deprived, uh, cruelly deprived of visitation with these uh, wonderful uh, Markells. Uh, children. So um, hope hope that changes here in the future and hope we get justice here down the road. Thank you. You a big thanks to Carl. Big thanks to uh, Tim and John. A couple quick points. Uh, tomorrow, 7 p.m. Eastern live. We're diving back into Lori Vallow Daybell. We're going to have a shrink on the show, not just anyone, but Dr. Roger Rhodes, uh, who came to us during the Murdoch uh, trial. He's awesome, has a really unique way of seeing things Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We are live with Detective Phil Waters, who investigated over 400 homicides for the Houston PD, and he'll be joined by former FBI agent Scott Duffy. And then 7 p.m. Eastern, Sunday night, Karn is on the case. Until then, love you, America. Love you, STS Nation. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.